Uh, yeah, today I have with me Michael Rogers. I feel like Michael's been around for a pretty long time, especially in open source. I don't remember where I first met you or heard about you, but it was, I mean, I definitely knew that you worked on Node and then probably feel like I talked to you a lot more after you made um, RFC with Nadia. Right, right, right. Well, we had you on and then, yeah, we just kind of kept talking after that as well. Actually, that's kind of interesting. Like, I feel like podcasts are a really great way to get to know people. Um, just like you talk with someone for like a whole hour or whatever it is. And I don't know, it's just, it's different. It, it's not that like, you know, you meet people in person. I feel like that's a huge thing. But then if you, at least if you're communicating online, it's a lot more like, I guess, intimate than like Twitter or something else, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm actually, I'm starting to consider starting a podcast with a, with a friend of mine who like, whenever we get a chance to catch up, we have these really great conversations, um, and we we don't get to have them enough. And so I'm like, why don't we just set up a time <laughs> tweak for us to have the conversation, and then we'll just publish it. <laughs> no, that that makes total sense. I feel like that's how a lot of podcasts start, right? It's like, yeah, you just have someone you like talking with, and you're like, oh, we might as well make it public. I feel like that's exactly what we did for Open Source. Um, yeah, I was just yeah. like, why not? Right? I, I feel like then it's like you don't have too much pressure about making it good because you at least enjoy it yourself, which probably says a lot about open source too, right? So. Right, right. Also, like you did that one like as a season and then released it Netflix style. And like mm-hmm. that's that's really nice. Cause I, I've done podcasts that are weekly and I've done with RFC with Nadia, we did seasons. And that was nice because we got to just kind of prepare a season and think about like the guests for that time. There was still some time pressure to like knock it out like on a particular schedule. And then I was on a weekly one for a while on the changelog. Mm-hmm. And that was like really stressful actually to like always have to be available for that and be really consistent. Um, but yeah, with, with open source, like people didn't even really know that you were doing it. Like I think right. you mentioned it to me, but like unless you told somebody, they didn't know that you were doing it. And then you just released all of it. It was so nice. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. You got to take as much time as you wanted. Right. Like I, I think that surprise factor actually helped. It helps like everyone else be more interested. And then you yourself is like, you're, you're not worried. Like you could just not do it and it'd be fine too. Um, I feel like I want, like, I guess this podcast. I didn't do that at all, but or I wanted to, but I was like, this is taking too long. I'll just release it. But <laughs> I don't feel the pressure to like do it every week. I don't know. I guess I feel like with the podcast, um, there's no, there's not a lot of rules into like what you can do. You can make it super long, really short, like the way you release it, the who you talk to. I was even thinking like, why, like, why do people like only talk to the person like one time? It's like you could just have multiple, um, and mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter. So I, I think just like, Feeling that out is fine. It's just when people, it's like when it gets popular, people start demanding things. It sounds exactly like open source again. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's why it's fun because now it's like nobody knows. Like, like I think we only have like 500 downloads for this one. Yeah. I, I don't know. I listen to a lot of podcasts and, and they really stretch like the different formats and stuff like that. Like some of the ones that are really produced, I, I really love and enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like some of the ones that I listen to the most consistently are just, you know, simple interview ones and they'll bring people back like several times and yeah. stuff like that. Like I think the long form podcast has Tanahasi Coates on like every other year, basically. And stuff like, like that. I think if it's like 10 minutes, some people like that other and the other ones are like three hours and people listen to the whole thing. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Some of those feel like a little meandering to me. <laughs> like they seem yeah. like a little bit too long. <laughs> That's true. I, I guess there's this balance of like how much 
editing you want? Like, how much do you want to do yourself? Or are you going to start paying people? And I was like, okay, I was editing the podcast before. And now it's like, I might as well just pay someone. And then also the transcripts, stuff like that. Yeah. Now you're running a business, basically. So (laughs) you just signed up for a side hustle. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny how you end up like the thing that you turn into your job, you find, you always find some side thing. Um, but they're, I feel like they're all related. I feel like we have to justify to like the world that like, especially in my case, it's like, if you are doing this thing you set out to do, I, I didn't want it to be too specific, too vague, because then it limits like what I feel like I can do. But like people change over time, right? Like after this has been a whole year and now I'm like, okay, I want to do a bunch of podcasts and it's not like it's a different thing. It's still about open source, right? It's funny how I keep thinking like podcasts and open source are the same going back to like thinking that like the thing that you think about, you like turn everything into that thing. That's yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. And you have the same maintenance problem, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Once you do it, like people just expect you to keep doing it. <laughs> right. Actually, this this happened recently. Someone just tweeted, like, hey, Nadia Henry, when are you gonna make another episode of Open Source? <laughs> we're like, we're not thinking about it right now, but like maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was um when I started running NodeConf, um, you know, it people just expected immediately that it would be a yearly thing. Like, I would, like there was no question. Like, oh yeah, so you're doing this next year? Like, same time? Like, like I moved the venue, and they were like, "What? Why?" <laughs> <laughs> and like, I would get really bored at like doing the same thing. So everyone had like a slightly different kind of format to it. And I was always like iterating and being creative about the format. Um, and that like people really like, some people really liked that and love, like love the iteration of it. And some people like kind of hated it. Like there are certain people that really want to do the same thing every year for some reason. Yeah. I was just thinking that I feel like, well, if they're more on the, I don't, I don't want to say consumer side, but like, just like want to be there, they, they probably want that consistency and like almost like nostalgia, right? But then if you're the one organizing it, you're just like, I'm doing the same thing over and over. I'm getting bored. Or, can we move? Because you want to feel like you're like progressing or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I, I would always tell this like, um, so in the early days of NodeConf, um, so Chris Williams helped me out running it, right? Like he actually, he's, he, I mean, he set it up. He, he ran the back of the financing and everything because I'd run a conference for CouchDB, but I was working at the CouchDB company at the time. And so I just like had a corporate credit card. Like there was no sponsors or budgeting. Right. Um, and I was like, I, I need to figure out how to do this like for real. And Chris offered to help. Um, and so we did NodeConf and JSConf like kind of together, like back to back in Portland. And I, I went there and helped kind of scout venues and he, you know, ran the whole kind of finance financing side. Um, and like after that, Chris kept kind of helping people start up conferences and, and I did too, actually. Like, you know, since he helped me, I really felt like I needed to help other people. And the advice that I kept giving people is like they they really wanted to go like, well, how did you do this? And like what kind of venue for this? And I was like, you should put your own spin on this a little bit, right? Like, here's like why we did certain things and the kinds of constraints that we had. And and in particular, like here's like the things you need to do to sell tickets and and you know, not be like financially in debt at the end of this. Um, but the but the big stuff, you know, like where do you do the parties at and what kind of food do you do? I'm like, well, what does your city have? Like, what is cool about where you are? Like, show it off, right? Like you're you're inviting a bunch of people to come, you know, basically to your house, like show it off. Um, and the ones that uh, I think like took on the most of their own character ended up persisting the longest. Um, like, you know, November is like really into Nashville and Dinosaur JS is really into Colorado and stuff like that. Hmm, that's really interesting because it's like taking advantage of the, you know, the location, the space versus like, like making it very specific and niche rather than just generalizing everything. 
Right, right. Like an O'Reilly conference, like they'll move cities and it's the same event. Like there's nothing right. different about it. <laughs> it's just somewhere else. <laughs> it's it's kind of like um like franchising for like McDonald's or something in a way. Yeah, and we we always had this approach with the the community conferences. Like there was no big media company looking to do a JavaScript event at that time. Um, there was no like big people that wanted to get money into that. And so we said like you know we have this huge community. Rather than try to do one event or try to make our events into the big event, like let's just do a lot of small events. Like let's just get more people running, you know, like two to three hundred people events rather than you know one that's you know three thousand people or whatever. Um, and I think that that worked out a lot better. I mean, one of the problems that that we had though in the conference community was that when the media people did show up. It changed the financing a lot. You know, like O'Reilly eventually started doing Fluent, which is like a thousand person conference. Um, and there's a few other bigger events as well. Also, when, when the Node Foundation came on board, um, that turned into a much bigger event around Node, stuff like that. Um, and when that happens, um, it's a lot more money. Um, but the weird thing about sort of conference costs is that there's not like a linear cost progression in conferences. Once you go over four or 500 people, everything gets more expensive per head. The venues that you're in are bigger um, and not as cool and more money. Um, the catering is much more expensive and you have much fewer options. Um, so, you know, when you're at a, a giant conference that's like a thousand people, those little sandwiches that they give you cost like $20 a piece. It's unbelievable. <laughs> like, there's just, you have no options. So they know that they have you, you know, they're, you're captured. Um, and so, like, you know, they start bringing in all the bigger sponsors and the sponsors are paying more money, but they also have more expectations. Um, so they really expect that, you know, they're going to get a booth and it's going to be in the space and da, da, da. when you're trying to do something you know a little bit more creative and community oriented you're not like you, you don't have booths you don't have like badge readers and things like that um so when those expectations change like those sponsors pull out of the community event um and and so without that level of financing the ticket prices have to come up to cover the event and you've already set expectations with people that tickets cost a particular amount of money for a particular quality of event and without the sponsorships you can't make that math work um, so I, I'd like you know at some point the events that I was doing when I was getting more creative I started saying like I'm not taking sponsors like I'm not gonna go through this thing again where in five years people have completely different expectations about what this should cost when there's no more sponsorship money um, and that like didn't actually go very well <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, like there's a reason I don't run events anymore. It's because like <laughs> you literally can't get people to pay what they cost, and uh, dealing with the sponsors is like not actually worth it or any kind of fun. I mean, it's interesting because I feel like that's not that different from like doing Patreon or like um, or even open source when we start getting funding and it changes people's expectations too, right? Like, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I, I knew that it would change people's expectations. I, I will say that I was wrong about how they changed it and what models that they changed. And this was something that I learned doing the podcast with Nadia actually. Was like I thought that it would be worse to fund individuals um, than to fund projects. I thought that it would create weird incentives for the person to kind of hold things hostage because it's now like their direct livelihood and the funding the project would be better. And it, I actually had it completely reversed. I was completely wrong where when you fund individuals they you have a compact with them, not with the project. So they have no incentive to hold the project hostage. <laughs> like they can do another related project that you might care about, and you will still be happy to be paying them. Like you're paying them for their work in an area. Uh, whereas like a lot of projects that, that we talked to had a lot of problems like spending the money 
changing the incentives in the project around how to allocate the money and all of that. Um, and yeah, so I, I just had it completely wrong. Um, and that was interesting to, to, to figure out just through the process of talking to different people with different models, including you. Yeah, and I, it's, it's funny, really relevant to me now because it's like, I forgot when that, well, I, I, that was obviously before I quit, but that podcast episode, but I don't know. I think, yeah, because when, I think when we talked, that was, I, I, I was still, I was working at, you know, Adobe and they were paying me to do it half time. And I was, we were talking about like kind of the conflicts with just even corporate sponsorship where if you compromise, well, not compromise, but like if you're spending half your time on, reg, you know, quote unquote, the regular work that uh, other people are doing and then this open source work, there's still that dichotomy and then you just feel bad. And then you like, even if it's your job to do it, you feel like not, 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 you're not appreciated. It's just like everyone else is thinking about other things. Um, and I feel like now, yeah, I, I agree that, you know, funding a project is hard because I, I have to deal with this now with both the open collective and the Patreon where it's like, obviously the Patreon is so much easier because yeah, you don't have to think about where it's allocated. It's like going to you directly, but then it's open collective. It's like, are how are you going to allocate? And it's like, are you going to pay the core maintainers? Are you going to pay random contributors? Are you going to pay your dependencies? Like people are suggesting that too. Um, or are you going to pay like me where I, I decide to do this full time? So you're going to pay like, it may, in my mind, it makes sense, even though obviously I'm biased now, that you would pay full time people, then other contributor maintainers, and then everyone else, if that even is possible. And I feel like at that point, it's better to spend a lot more money on a few people, even though I guess it seems like you're like, um, what is it, like biasing certain people? Like it just feels like the money is more well spent when you're not distributing like 1% of it to 100 people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I was just remembering, you know, when I first talked and when I first met Nadia, um, I had read her article uh, where she was kind of first getting involved in, in the topic. And uh, my impression was that like she saw it as like a financing problem. And so I, I really walked into it thinking like, I need to unwind, like it's not a money problem. It's like a, a time problem and like <laughs> it's like a contribution problem like getting people to contribute um in a meaningful way into the right things but it's not necessarily a money problem and um she was already there i think like she had talked to enough people that um she she had a much kind of wider view of it um and was thinking about it more just in terms of general sustainability um but i, I remember coming into it going like like that is not the biggest problem like the money is not the biggest problem and then when open collective started mm-hmm. um and like nobody was really even getting funded yet but yeah. it already was like oh this is the solution to sustainability <laughs> like just, just the, t- the tone and like like the people in open source were just like oh, okay all right this is fixed now like you just raised money um and i was like i don't i don't think that that's the case and um they were starting to just associate raising money on open collective with being sustainable and then when we talked to uh we talked to the, the uh, I, for, I forgot his name the guy who um uh, manages Mocha, or he, he maintains Mocha. Um, mm. And they did an open collective, yes. and he told us that, that like that, that was one of the most telling conversations that we ever had about that stuff. Because he was like, "Oh yeah, well, like we're having a really hard time spending the money because some people in the project feel like you shouldn't be paid to do any of the fun things." So like he wanted to break off a thing that he wanted to do, and then carve out some mm. time 
like away from his work to do it and get paid. And they were like, no, like that's a fun thing. Like you can't do that. And I was like, so wait, so the solution to open source sustainability is to pay people below market rate to do things that aren't fun. <laughs> like really? Like that's our plan? Yeah. How do we get into that situation? <laughs> like it was just unbelievable to me. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, and it's not like you, like they he was al- they were already not paying people like well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, work. yeah. Uh, that podcast and also just Nadia's work in general has really widened the conversation about sustainability and made it about more than just kind of funding. Funding is like a tool, and we keep getting more tools for different types of funding and trying that out has been really interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt like money has never been the solution, but it's more like I mean, we need some people think. Like that's it, and like it's that simple. We just need money, and other people are like, "Oh, it's just going to make things really complicated." And I think it's kind of like, can we say both? Like, it's going to be complicated, <laughs> and we need it, but it's not like the end all be all. And you know, it's like we have money now, and I'm getting paid to do it. It's like it's not like I almost feel like either myself or other people are like, "Oh, if you have money, then suddenly the output of this you know project is going to be like twenty times better." And so, not really. It actually, in some sense, we are, you know, we're releasing less, and maybe that's okay because I had this pressure to like feel like I had to keep up with this whole hype cycle and making releases every week or whatever, and it's just not. It's not. It's not healthy. And I think what I really need with money is more. I just want to be able to not burn out, not to, mm-hmm. not to say the more money we get, the you know more code and more features and whatever. It's just making sure we can actually continue doing this. Yep, it's a tool. And and I mean, the best thing for the project and what people want of the project may not be more releases necessarily. I mean, not if more releases you know, come with a level of instability, at least. Right. We're trying to crank them out as quick as possible. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, money is always just a tool. Um, and I think, I, I feel like I have a very different perspective on this than most people I talk to. Um, because if you're from an older generation of open source, of which I was like sort of actually involved in. Um, I shouldn't talk about them like they're completely separate from me. Like I, I did do open source work in that model and with those projects um, for quite a while. Um, but there were, I, I certainly did not feel like open source was part of the rest of the tech industry at that time. Like open source was its own special thing. And even though all this money was coming in and all the people that I looked up to were like basically tenured at Sun or whatever, like um, somehow... We we maintained some kind of moral like aura of superiority. It was like the only thing that open source kept from free software was that like it's morally superior. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and like thinking about it as like this separate separate kind of unique snowflake is really important to a lot of those people's identity. And I think that like um, when you talk about the money and the funding and that kind of stuff, it's just dirty to them. Like they just they don't want to consider that part of the the problem part of the thing they're talking about. And they don't really want to acknowledge the intertwined relationship between the rest of the tech industry and open source. Like they want to talk about how open source has won effectively, but they don't want to talk about like what that really means. It means that Mm. open source is held up by all the money from tech. Um, And then I think a, a, a newer, younger generation of open source is really interested in this idea that like, 
Um, and, and I think part of this comes down to like, like I'm at the oldest end of millennial, right? Like I was born in 83, but um, <laughs> as all of the sort of uh, economic opportunities have kind of fallen out for this generation, they're always looking for side hustles and they're always looking for a way to be like independently financed, right? To not mm. be dependent on a company because companies become so ephemeral. And so there's this huge focus on like, paying me directly to do this open source thing that I want to do. Like, how do I get paid to just work on the thing that I want to do on my own in some kind of independent funding strategy, separate from the rest of the tech industry? And my, my view on open source sustainability in general and open source in general is that you cannot separate open source from the tech industry. Like, open source is the tech industry. Right, I was going to say that. <laughs> I mean, like, like, most of the code that you run in proprietary products is actually open source. Like, open source code enables all of that. Every company in the world uses open source software. And so to some extent, they're they're putting into it by using it and finding bugs. And they're also putting into it often in terms of direct development resources. Um, and, and so w- what that means is that there's already a huge amount of money going in to pay people to write code at companies. And if you're trying to break off a section of those people and finance them some other way, like how are you going to do that? How are you going to get an equivalent amount of money? We're talking about the most well-paid profession in the world, right? Well, not not uh, there's a couple niche professions, but like the largest well-paid profession in the world. Let's say it that way. Um, one of the highest growth professions in the world and in the industry. Literally, like all of you know venture capital and a lot of other capital is going into tech, um, and you're going to like have an island that is separate from that in order to fund it and sustain it. Like, I don't see how that's ever going to work. Um, and having, having run a foundation <laughs> and run an open source foundation, had to beg people for money, even having like, you know, a lot of incentives for companies to give you money that is not just charity. Um, it is roughly a hundred times harder to convince a company to give you a hundred thousand dollars than it is to convince them to give you half of a person's time that they're paying $200,000 to. <laughs> like, th- th- there, there's like this thing baked into tech companies' heads that like hiring people is good and having engineers on staff is good and giving money away is bad. <laughs> <laughs> and like, the cost-benefit analysis of that is like, they, they're not doing it. Like, they want to see a, another engineer that's good in their office. <laughs> like, that's what they want. So it's like, do you want to like keep up with this cultural fight or yeah, yeah and so like i've just i've tried to what i've tried to do in the last like say 5 years or so is try to remove this line between developers and open source developers like everybody is a developer everybody's an open source developer like that's just the world that we're in now um try to change governance principles and a lot of the the ways in which people run their projects, that they're more open to contributions that are at the edges, that are more casual, that they're not trying to optimize for somebody that is actually embedded full-time because there's a huge number of developers working on applications that are going to find a bug, just want to fix it real quick and move along. Um, and the more open that you are to that, the more sustainable that you can kind of be in the long term. I mean, I think that's changing. I, I feel like a lot of companies are trying to adopt open source practices and even like I don't know when the term inner source got introduced, but stuff like that, right? I, I think um, it was. It feels like people are they're all trying like culturally, companies are trying to change to be open source without necessarily producing their own open source, right? Right. I mean, if, okay. First and foremost, we just don't know how software gets built. <laughs> like we we actually don't know. <laughs> like, it's good admission. That's yeah, good. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I've been working in this field for. I mean technically like 20 years, but 
um, at real companies, like bigger companies, for about 18 years. Um, and we we don't know how software gets built. Like it's it just happens. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've been a part of and even managed like every software development process and practice. And yeah, I mean, I've it's we we don't ha- we don't really understand this at all. Um, I think that we know like that people can learn to write code, that we can get them to write code on certain things. If we keep them happy, they tend to write it. Um, mm-hmm. That that's pretty much it. Um, and open source is like a really organic process that seems to mostly be working. Um, there are certainly problems uh, at the edges, but it, it it mostly works. People seem to get things done. They seem to communicate. Um, it's definitely better than it's ever been. Um, and so the, the inner source stuff, you know, taking some of those ideas um, that we're seeing work in practice and trying to apply them to companies, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think that's probably a good practice. Um, where where I where I tend to get called in to talk to companies is when they want to do something big in open source, which is usually like they want to open source a project or you know add contributors to a project full time or something like that. And um, it, it's funny because like I'm one of the open source guys, so they call me in for that. But what I really think what we need to be doing is just like saying, look, all of your developers are open source developers. Like just let them fix bugs and all this that they're using because they're using open source software every day. <laughs> yeah, I feel like yeah, you're right. Like in a way. Either I actually gave a talk about this recently at JS Heroes. I was trying to say that sometimes we we treat the people that are very visible, like on social media, like they're like gods or something, right? Like they are like this special type of developer that's open source, or you don't even know who works on the project, so they're more like anonymous people that you just report bugs to. And so either case, you don't think that you can do open source. Um, and and so what you're saying makes sense. Like, how do we get people to realize like they can contribute back? And like the whole point of open source is that you can actually be involved in the process, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think smaller projects are, are much easier to contribute to. Like, <clears throat> they don't have a lot of these bigger issues. But I do think that we were we're still to some extent really caught up in this BDFL notion. And it's like it's like the fallback sort of governance model. Um, and it, it just becomes really problematic really quickly um, if you're trying to encourage people to contribute and to stick around and help maintain it. Um, it's not a good model. And so, you know, I, I put a lot of time into trying to come up with better practices and principles and document them. And um, and to some extent, like, I mean, it worked. Like, we we fixed Node. Like, Node.js works <laughs> under a lot of those principles. But um, I don't know that we've really, like, changed the culture in a significant way. So Right. Well, I guess it... Also, is like BDFL works for those small projects, right? And it's more that when they're trying to transition, how do they how do they do that? And maybe it's because they're caught off guard. Where, like what you said, like projects randomly get super popular, and then they don't like your little pet project randomly becomes the thing everyone uses, and they weren't intending on it to be like that. And then there's no support structure, and we're trying to figure out how to like create those what you like guidelines to to do that. Yeah, and, and doing that from scratch is always really hard. Um, I mean, I've, I've had to do it. It's it's tough to um, go out on a limb and say like, oh, you know, like this is how we should run our project. It's unlike how any other project runs. <laughs> um, whereas like BDFL is like you know sort of simple. Like I make all the decisions. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. It doesn't need to be documented. <laughs> it's how Linux works, I guess. Not really though in practice, but you know, um, 
it makes a good tagline or whatever. I kind of want to go back to what you're saying about value, actually, um, or values. And I guess uh, I was reading um, Steve Kavlik's article that he did recently about like what comes after open source. He was talking about like the difference between, I guess, what you were calling open, old school open source, um, like free software, and then like this new group of people. I guess I'm part of like the GitHub. Age. Well, yeah, I, I guess I was even talking about like, so the, the open source folks sort of, he, he hinted at this, but like free software was sort of even before the people that I'm talking about. <laughs> um, I think he's mostly talking about the Apache era people in that and like open source definition people. And they, and they have a very big split with the free software folks. And, and I think that he is going to get into that in the future. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, so like um, a lot of the, value stuff. So the free software community was values driven and in some ways that community never had to deal with a lot of these problems that we're talking about because the values mm-hmm. are baked into the onboarding. Like it's it's like part mm-hmm. of the the set of things that you learn as you're adapting to it, right? Whereas because open source is so integrated into commercial software and because it isn't like values first, um Part of the onboarding into open source is not like adopt these values, right? Um, most of the people that were doing them like created institutions to perpetuate them. Um, like th- this is not very like well kind of documented, um, but it really should be. Um, Apache, the, the foundation, they started with obviously just Apache Web Server, and then they started to bring in other projects, and at some point. You know, some companies had started to build businesses around open source, like Sun, and they were like, "Oh, if we put the Apache brand on our open source project, it'll just like be better, <laughs> just make more money, right?" And so Apache had to figure out a way to one, not just be like a clearinghouse for branding things Apache, and two, like how do you integrate all of these new developers that had never done open source before? Like this is a very different time, right? So this project that's coming in to be like what they eventually called the incubator and the whole Apache incubation process. Um, a lot of the incubation process is not about the project, but about the people. And you know, you have this team of five people that made this project at a company, and they need to open up. They need to change how they work. They can't just do everything in a in an office together all the time. They need to communicate openly. Mm-hmm. They need to bring in more more contributors. And so the incubator both provides like the guardrails for that. Like you can't graduate out of it until you have more contributors. But it also serves as like a, a training process for new open source developers that were coming out of proprietary. And so like the Apache values and the Apache way of doing things is embedded in those people and in that whole kind of generation of open source actually. Like it 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 sort of fanned out from there. I think that people don't really nowadays people don't talk about the impact that Apache Foundation had um, because they literally, you know, just trained like a couple thousand open source developers and those people in turn trained and adopted those values elsewhere. I think where things got really messy though is that they embedded their values in a process and for a lot mm-hmm. of people that learned the Apache way, they learned a process and a way of working without really internalizing the values that that, that were the, the motivation to define that process. Right? Um, we tried to make this distinction when we created the the node foundation's governance model where we have a way of doing things that is very mutable that we expect to change over time that can change between different working groups and then we have a set of values that went into that and that's the thing that can't change 
<laughs> something that like you have to sort of internalize and adopt and and then you can use that to make further process changes. Yeah, I guess that gets into just like this the nature of like how do we retain information and like knowledge transfer across people and this like our culture like through like these processes and like and this I think about like the podcast we did on open source about liturgy. It's like you know in a religious way you have those processes and traditions as well. And it's like, what do we have in open source that that helps us to do that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really easy for people to copy a process and it's a lot harder for them to like internalize a value structure. Right. Um, it's just so much more work. Um, and I think like, like there's a place for ritual, right? Like ritual is like a, an interesting thing that you, you do and you don't know why you're doing it. But um, you don't have to know why you're doing it for it to be effective. Like uh, that's like the the best. Uh, when I was learning transcendental meditation, that was like one of the things that the instructor said on the first day that really stuck with me. Is like you don't have to believe in this for it to be effective. <laughs> like that's actually pretty. You just do it. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and like uh, there there's a bunch of things that I think fill that void in open source, right? Like I think conferences to some extent do that. Like there there are people that go to FOSDEM every year. And and they they have a routine that they do and people that they see and places that they got to eat and it it's it's like it's like going to Mecca, right? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, makes sense. <laughs> no, but like what you said, it's like it's it's I guess it's really powerful that you know if you're involved in this ritual or tradition, it it changes people, it, it affects how we live. But then you don't have to know how it works. But I think I guess it's on us or maybe on the people that establish those traditions to pass down like why that was there in the first place. Otherwise we forget. And I think it's almost like maybe even like free software, all that stuff. Like I didn't know anything about that when I got involved in open source and I didn't have to, because we stopped caring about all those other concerns. We had new concerns, but then knowing, I guess knowing history is, it should be relevant to like those things. Cause we were just reinventing something again and not knowing what happened before. Yeah, so there's a book that I always recommend to people on this, and it's not the one that most people recommend about open source, actually, because there's a lot of good books on open source, on process, and on values. But um, I feel like in the history telling of this, a lot of the underlying motivations and and real values of free software get mistaken or mixed up in a lot of the. And I put this nicely. Um, there's the antagonistic sort of attitude of, of a lot of the free software folks. Um, and it's really hard to separate them. There's this book called Hackers um, by Stephen Levy. Mm. And this book uh, starts in the 1950s, actually, um, in the Tech Model Railroad Club at MIT. And it basically traces this group of people into creating what the AI lab at MIT, which is still very popular. Um, and all of that work all the way through, and you can just skip the third act. Uh, so the first, the uh-huh. first two acts are very relevant and really plain to stuff. And the third act is like about the gaming industry in, in at a Sierra and just has no relevance. But like, um, skip that and then move on to the actually. There's appendixes, um, and one of the appendixes that he did, like in a further edition, was called the Last Hacker, which is um, about. Stallman before Stallman started the Free Software Foundation. And it was literally like he was the last person holding the torch of these values that started in the Tech Model Railroad Club about 
being creative and hacking things together and and opening up access to other people and and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, like th- there was you know a religious war against timeshare computing basically at that like in, inside of this AI lab because it, it restricted people's ability to fiddle with the system and that's where all the creativity really comes from and where it lies. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's it's really it's a really great book. Uh, one, he's uh, he's a great writer, um, and two, I think that it's really relevant because like. These are, you know, the values that I still hold, like from like getting involved in this community really early on, this was a lot more prevalent. And, and, and also like, I was actually like a, a a security hacker really, really early on when I was young. Um, and I was just, but I remember just being completely motivated by like, I want to learn this thing and I want to tweak it and I want to change it. Um, like that was my motivation and there's something really like raw and human about it. There's like a human instinct to like want to learn things and want to manipulate them in in order to understand them better, um, and that was a lot of the motivation that went into it and eventually became open source because if, you, if it's not open if it's not open source if the software isn't free um, you mm-hmm. can't actually learn it and understand it and be able to tweak it like that's why the, the the freedom to fork is the first freedom right like that's that's why that that is the most important thing like I need to be able to take this off and do something else with it and go my own way. Um, and a lot of that gets lost in a lot of the sort of free versus open source and copy left and all of that kind of stuff, um, which is much more about you know how do you enforce and perpetuate the values. Like copy left is is important if you believe that um, there is no other incentive for people to open up the source of their software. Um, and I think that there is still software that is built um, where there is no other incentive. Um, you know, like we we operate on the web and in cloud computing, and there is like a lot of incentive. Um, and in fact, it's almost impossible to get developer adoption if you don't open source things. Um, but in other areas of computing, like a, a lot of embedded systems, for instance, um, there are strong incentives to not open source things, and and it, you actually do need licensing there to solve that problem. Um, yeah, I I think that like. That community is unfortunately unwilling to admit other incentive structures, um, which has made it hard for them. Not only in in this era where um, commercial software and and open source software are ostensibly the same thing, um, are almost the same thing. They're they're almost indistinguishable from each other. Um, it's made it hard for them to adapt to that. But also, I think that it's made it hard for them to have a place in this conversation that we're having about open source sustainability because it's about incentives that go far beyond the license, what licensing can solve. Like licensing cannot make me um, stop feeling like I owe it to someone to fix this bug request. <laughs> like, like, like yeah, there's no license yeah. that solves that. Like, it, I mean, right. all the licenses say there are no guarantees. <laughs> it clearly isn't fixing this problem for me. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast you did with Nadia on like A16Z, and it was that was like two years ago, and you were talking about production and consumption, and we're still talking about that. Like how, like in Steve's article, it was about how like. Licenses only deal with the consumption side of like limiting, uh, I guess, allowing access or not, and it has nothing to do with production, right? Like, it, like no one, like in in a sense, I, I talked about this too. Like all the guilt that I have in open source is all like self imposed. It's all like I feel bad. No one can make me do anything in a way, right? Like none of us are legally obligated to to solve someone's bug or answer them on Twitter or anything, but we feel. Culturally, we feel like we should, or, or, or like we want to help people. 
Um, but that has nothing to do with licenses, right? right. So. It also doesn't have that much to do with money, right? Like, if any, if anything, money could make it worse. <laughs> yes, yeah, it actually does make it worse. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is a real issue because there are people that will, I mean, I don't know how many people would want to say that publicly, but they, they could call you out and be like, well, I'm paying you, so why didn't you fix this for me kind of thing? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, they could be donating like $2 and they're like, oh, you have to fix this for me. And it's like, that's why people would rather not accept any money because people like devalue your work. Um, this this gets into like you know why why you would have a Patreon in the first place. And now I'm like the idea of having perks is not. I don't know. I guess I don't I don't like that idea anymore. At least for doing open source because it just incentivizes you to have to do extra work that you weren't willing to do in the first place, and then you feel bad about it. So it's like I'm already doing work. Um, if they want to pay for it, they can, and they could choose not to. And so they doesn't mean that once they pay, now it's an obligation. It's like they turn the the gift into a transaction, right? And it's supposed to be a gift. Yeah, th- that that line is really, really hard, right? Um, like to some extent, Patreon is not really just patronage, right? Like it is not just gifts. Um, like you can, if you have a podcast, you can do like a patron only podcast feed and, uh, you can do art that is only for your patrons and things like that. So it, it, it does in some cases just operate as like a paywall. Well, I guess to say, yeah. And then, you know, they don't really have a lot of, you know, structure around that. You can do whatever you want. There's just a way to, you know, accept money from people and then it's, it's established brand. So, Maybe they already have their credit card on there, so it's easier for them to do it. But then you're up; it's up to you to decide all the tiers and stuff. And I look at you know, like people that are artists or on YouTube; they have like tiers that are like one, two, three dollars or something, um, and like or or more. And then they'll yeah, like what you said, they'll like do a like a private podcast or your your own piece of artwork um, if you pay a certain amount. And it's like unless I already want to do it. I just don't see why I'm willing to do that for so little money. <laughs> um, and I, that's why it's like, yeah, you would rather just do it for free. <laughs> <laughs> and I probably don't say this. I may, I may have never said this publicly, um, but like, I don't trust developers as much as other people. Like, I don't believe that like putting every decision into the devel- the individual developer's hands is like the best thing in the world. Um, mm-hmm. th- there's a long history of paying developers just to do open source or to do like whatever open source that they want to do. And it has gone incredibly poorly. Um, <laughs> like, like I, I've heard it. Some, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you don't want to flame individual people. So this stuff like isn't public. Right. Um, but they've held projects hostage. They've taken a year off on something that nobody cared about. Right. Um, they end up listening to their community far less because there's just no incentive left. Like they're paid to do whatever anyway. I, I should say outright that like I make a fair amount of money. I make enough money to be comfortable. I'm not independently wealthy. Like I haven't had like an exit or anything. But like I am paid well, and I do take jobs that will pay me well so that I can remain comfortable. <laughs> um, I'm not trying to like say that I'm you know sacrificing for particular work. Um, but there there's something to be said about the fact that like if I was just off doing my own thing. I wouldn't know that anyone actually cared about it necessarily. I may not be doing the most valuable thing right now with my time, but at least it's valuable to someone who is willing to pay me this. Um, that's like a natural filter um, that I feel like you don't have when you get 
I mean, some people at big companies are actually just hired to like be the person that does that there. Um, I, I, yeah, I've, I've sort, I've had almost a job like that before, um, where I was sort of paid to be me on behalf of somebody. Um, but that was more like going out to conferences and speaking and doing kind of DevRel stuff, not, um, not like actual development. Um, and it, it just like, it doesn't align incentives very well. Um, I've, I mean, I've had to try and fight against people in the past that are just paid no matter what they do to keep on this, stay on this project and tell me no, <laughs> like, and to tell their community no and to listen to nobody. Like they have hmm. that job, they thought for life and then sun imploded and <laughs> now they don't have that job. But, um, at the time, like that, that was, that was how things worked. Um, and yeah, I just, I don't think that that's a great model. Like I don't have, I don't have faith in that, in that model the way that other people seem to have. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't have faith in general capitalism to figure out these problems either, but I just, like, yeah. I don't have faith in these individual people. Well, I guess, how does that relate to your point before about paying individuals versus, um, projects? Yeah. I mean, at least in that case though, there is some compact between, the people paying that person and them. Like, I think, like, Evan's a good example of this, right? Like, Evan, Evan does view. And, um, you know, he'll go off on, like, ViewPress will happen, right? And so, like, he wasn't working on Vue.js when ViewPress happened. And a lot of people that are into view probably didn't really give a shit about ViewPress. Um, but he, he was confident that, like, the people that give him money were going to be excited about something like that, right? And thought that that was, like, a, a worthwhile use of his time. Um, you know, if he was just like, you know, working on a breaking release of UJS that would piss everybody off, um, he he would expect to have a lot of patrons pull out, right? <laughs> like he is incentivized to like at least not piss off his community, right? Whereas like like I mean, I'll just say like when Guido was at Google, just being paid to be Guido, like he didn't really have an incentive to listen to people. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So like the, I guess the pressure in a way is, because I, I feel this same thing where I'm like, I'm getting paid now. So what am I supposed to do? And it's like, I become afraid to do what I want because I am afraid of what other people want me to do. And then it just becomes this like spiral of anxiety where it's like everything you do seems like it could be wrong. And like, you know, that's true. Like every release could be like a, another, you know, you just have to fix all these bugs, blah, 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 all these things. And I'm like, what do I even want to do? And so like even making the podcast, like I thought it was great, but then I'm like, all these people that know me through Babel, do they care about this other thing? Because the thing I actually care about is open source in general, but through obviously through Babel too. And I would hope that the people that are sponsoring me care about me for doing that, not just Babel, right? I don't know. I, I think that a lot of the things that I'm, known for doing and a lot of the work that I've done that was really valuable to people. When I did it, it was really risky. Like it was not a, a sure thing. And you can really easily get trapped in this place when you're doing the same thing or maintaining the same project for long enough where you really don't want to take risks on the next thing or do a new thing or like, what if I stop working yeah. on this, then I won't have this opportunity anymore. Um, and I don't like... I don't know why I've been able to just hand things off and to stop caring and to move on to the next thing so easily. I, I think to some extent, like I do get naturally bored doing the same thing long enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I had some early wins handing things off. Um, 
Like, oh, so you have a like you have an experience with doing, yeah, yeah, and, and like and seeing it work out really well, right? Like better than if I had continued to do it. Um, like I started the PouchDB project in like 2010 um, and handed it off pretty pretty soon, actually. Like um, I think I renamed it uh, to PouchDB. It started with a different mm-hmm. name. Um, and there was like, you know, going to be a big rewrite, but I just wasn't finding the time and handed it off and then it handed it off again. Um, and it just, it became a much better project because I had handed it off. <laughs> like it's, it's way better. Um, like they adopted promises when I was saying promises are dumb. So like that wouldn't right. have happened, obviously. <laughs> um, and yeah, that was yeah. like a really good decision for them that I, that I was dumb for, for trying to fight against. Um, and that was, that was the project that Nolan was yeah, on. Yeah, and then yeah. he wrote that post. Yes, yes. About open source. Right, 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 right. I mean, yeah, Nolan did a much better job with it than I could have. Dale, Dale Harvey was running it before him and did a much better uh-huh. job than I would have. Um, and so, like, it just it worked out really well. And um, yeah, I think that like that that turning out so well has really like encouraged me to not try to hold on to things. And I mean, I worked on Node.js early on, but it wasn't like I, I owned a part of it, right? And was trying to like hold on to that piece. Uh, I think the closest thing to this would be Request, right? Like Request. I wrote it really early. It's been around for almost ten years now. I'm fairly, I think, tied to that project. And even that, like, we're shutting it down now, right? Like, I'm not handing it off because I don't think that it should be handed off. I think that the right thing to do is to slowly spin it down, right? And that's a different decision, anyways. I, I guess why did you decide to do that now? So after like ten years, or so I, I should be honest and clear that like I have tried to hand it off a few times, like. There, and we've tried a couple different governance models that got other people involved, and and different people have come in and done great work on the project. Um, and 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 I was finding, I found out actually in the process of shutting it down that it was a lot of people's like first or really early like open source work that they did and contributions. So that was really cool to find out because they've gone on to do great things. So JavaScript is, is in a big transition right now, really big. And th- this has happened before. I think that if you look at jQuery, for instance. Um, jQuery sort of took off at a time where the platform was very deficient. Like the web platform just didn't have enough there for you to build applications effectively. And so we started to build different frameworks on top of it. And Dojo got popular like right before jQuery did. Um, but eventually jQuery kind of won and was like the right. tool chain that made the web much more usable. Um, and eventually every site took it. And then um, the platform kind of caught up. And we didn't really need it anymore, and so people stopped depending on it directly, and um, you know, new websites stopped taking it. It's obviously still on like a, a huge portion of the internet. Like it's it's probably I think still by numbers it is probably more adopted than any project ever. But <laughs> but I mean like like in in the minds of younger new web developers, like it's just not part of the stack that we accept anymore, and that's okay because it served its purpose, right? Like it. It was um, it, it filled the deficiency at the time, and it also encouraged the platform to catch up. I think that Node, in the early days, like we were painting over a ton of deficiencies in the language and the platform. Like I, I can't exaggerate this enough. Like not only did we not have like async generators, we didn't have generators. So like when we developed streams for iterative data, we just had no primitives to work with. Um, there was not a binary type. There was no binary type yet. Mm-hmm. Like um, the standards bodies were arguing about it. There was a like um, ECMA was trying to define one, and the WebGL folks were trying to define one, and it was like unclear mm-hmm. who would win, <laughs> and like it wasn't implemented yet in all browsers. So like we created the buffer object. It was because like there was no other choice, right? Um, and 
the, the callback first error pattern like is like we are papering over deficiency in the language. Whenever you're literally creating an API for error handling and error propagation, you're papering over deficiency of the language. Um, <laughs> like that, that is that is the job of the language is to like <laughs> throw errors. Um, and so the, the platform has caught up um, like in a big way. And yeah. I've been using these new parts of the platform enough now that I can kind of see how big of a change it is. Like how I use the language is different than how I use the language before. And a lot of decisions that are really low level in request are not going to be able to catch up or, or change along with this change in the platform. So, um, you know, we could make a new version that was semi-compatible and was an easier upgrade path, but use these new patterns, but was never like of those patterns, right? That was never like fully embracing them because we have this legacy. But we'd probably get a ton of users just because it's request, right? Like we already have this market share. But I don't think that that's the best thing for us and for the ecosystem. Like it would be better for people to take newer libraries that are on more modern patterns. Um, and we have like a weird sort of unfair advantage because of like how well adopted requests already is. And there's yeah. A- yeah, and, and I mean, it's more than, than just the inertia, right? Like, there's all the people that have already adopted it that are not going to change. But, like, if you Google for how to do something with HTTP and Node, you're going to get an example that has request and express. <laughs> like, like, there's, um, and, and even if we change our API a little bit, um, people are still going to find it because they were trying to do it because Stack Overflow told them to use it. Uh, they are not going to think, like, oh, I need a different HTTP client. Like, let me search NPM or look for a blog post or something else. Um, so the only way to really push people in a different direction to adopt newer, better libraries and, and to incentivize an ecosystem of people to create better libraries is to just deprecate requests, to just take it out of the pool. Um, and so that's what we're doing. It's it's on maintenance mode for a while, and then I think we'll eventually fully deprecate it. Yeah, that's interesting that, in a sense, the reason why it took so long was because JavaScript itself was, we are trying to figure out stuff in TC39. And I guess, in some sense, even Babel was part of all mm-hmm. that. And yeah, I mean, so I, I think that like it might seem like a big deal now that we're deprecating requests, but I think that in a few years it will not seem like a big deal at all. Um, I, I think see. that there's there's a big shift coming. Um, so much of our tool chain is built to paper over these deficiencies in the platform, and now that the platform has caught up, we can just greatly reduce the amount of conceptual overhead and tooling and just code between our code and and the running environment. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that we'll see another kind of contraction similar to once um, stuff, like after jQuery, basically. Like I think that we'll see another big contraction and we'll get rid of a lot of tool chains and there'll be really new tools that are much thinner, um, that that are just much smaller. And I don't even know where you know, even something as big as NPM shakes out in that. Yeah, because I was going to ask about like, how do you know when you should just make a new name or deprecate. But then that seems impossible. I think maybe more interesting is more like how do you like send a clear message to the community on all this stuff? Because like I think people might not like the, you know different words like maintenance or being deprecated or end of lifing something or being dead. Like people have different definitions for all those things. And I think like Sending any message across for your open source project is hard because not everyone goes on GitHub. You know, like not everyone's on Twitter. They might just have it somewhere, right? It's like mm-hmm. hard to actually migrate people to anything, whether it's your next major version or a whole new project. Right? 
Yeah, I mean, for us, like we can update the README, which which does make it around, right? Because that's on not just the GitHub project, but also in npm. Um, and you know, I think in a year we'll probably start printing a warning that says that we're deprecated, um, or having a warning get printed in some way that says that this is deprecated. So at least when people run it, they'll see that, like, okay, yeah, we we should probably figure out like how to not use this library anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that a lot of people are sort of suggesting alternatives right now, and then people are complaining about those alternatives and saying that they are not as feature complete or they don't have this or that. And my response is sort of like, well, there's no incentive for them to write that while request is the market share leader, right? Like, well, you know, like, mm. yeah. So I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that the message actually just gets to the right people that are working on HTTP clients um, or want to work on a new HTTP client, and that they go and do the work to, to bring it up. I think that, that those are more important to me to get the message to right now than in the future that people should be switching. So. Right. It makes sense that you would, I mean, it might be interesting to just talk to those people. And then, and all those things that people are asking for, it's either those are actual feature requests or then they can better understand what their project's about too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. Things are, things are changing. Everything's always changing in JS. That's true. But, um, I, I do think that we're we've had a really big and long cyclical cycle of um, adding and and sort of <laughs> like compacting all of our tool chains together. Um, like our dev chains have never been bigger. The number of tools that we have between writing code and running it in the browser has never been larger. Um, and so it's it's just a much bigger sort of collapse to see all of that stuff potentially come down. Like when I look at something like Pika, it's like okay. Like if I wrote an application this way, I would just not need all of what I've been building. <laughs> um, it's it's a it's a significant enough shift, um, and I, I don't you know I don't know that Pika is going to be like the thing, um, but I think it'll be something that looks like Pika. Right. Well, I guess you even see the progression of those kinds of tools where it's like after we had Webpack, you know, and then Parcel and Pika, like they're all adding. Or trying to create React app, all those things are all trying to combine all these tools together. Or, or we can wait for Sebastian's new thing that has everything. <laughs> um, I don't know. I so one one lesson that I learned in the early Node days is that um, being highly incompatible is its own advantage. Um, like you sort of have two paths that you can go down when you're creating a new thing, right? Like you can try to. Leverage everything that came before you, and like all of the work and adoption that people already have of these libraries in this large ecosystem, um, or you can start from scratch. <laughs> um, and the worst thing you can do is actually be in between. I think, um, and, and I'll get into that in a second. But in the early days of Node, we were we were the most incompatible platform that I had ever seen um, because not only, <laughs> so one, it's a new platform, right? So it's, you know, it we don't have Python standard lib or. Ruby standard library, any of these ecosystems, we're like new. Um, but it's in JavaScript. Hey, like people, people have written JavaScript. Well, it turns out that like there's no library on that people have written in JavaScript that doesn't rely on the DOM in some way. <laughs> so can't use any of that. Actually, that's all gone. Um, when you look at uh, when people build new platforms, they tend to write a C binding layer, and then a lot of what happens in the early ecosystem is people binding to the same C libraries that existed for a long time. So, like uh, Postgres adapters and MySQL adapters, and a lot of that kind of stuff is is usually just you know the same C code that people just rebind to. That's how Ruby and Python work, for instance. That's how Java works. It's all just the same underlying libraries. 
So we don't work with any of those, and uh, and you can't bind to them because they use blocking I/O under the hood, and you just can't block your node process forever in the C binding layer. So um, people have to write those from scratch. So like Tim Caswell wrote uh, Postgres driver in pure JavaScript from scratch. <laughs> um, and when we were creating this new ecosystem, all of these things that people thought were disadvantages that we were starting over were advantages because it, the internet's a really big place and. There's a lot of people that want to be the first person that writes that library. Yeah, like I was noticing that like, too. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, like one of the reasons why I was so incentivized to to get so involved early on in the community was like I could literally be the person who wrote the first HTTP client, and mm-hmm. you know, and TJ showed up to be the person who wrote the first you know uh, web framework, right? And like that's why Express is really big, and and like that's that's all of TJ's motivation. <laughs> like, and so it was funny because people always make a really big deal out of uh, when. The early community people leave to go off and do a new thing, but what's so funny about it is like it's like no no but they they they're gonna keep doing that forever like like the, that's right. what they want to do right <laughs> like Caswell went off and wrote love it right like he wrote a whole new platform so that he could be the guy in the new platform <laughs> and, you know, right, right. and TJ oh. went to Go because Go was really undeveloped at the time um, I never thought of it that yeah way. yeah I, I mean it's like like it's it's really fun first of all to be involved in a community when it's that young and new. Um, but but it's also you know a lot of people like you were saying like people tend to think of, of developers as being like you know either famous or anonymous, and um, if you're around just a little while you realize like oh no no they're not really great they were just there first <laughs> like, like <laughs> yeah. if you're there early you have a lot more opportunities. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people want to show up to be the first person to write that. And so, like my advantage, my my advice to to Pika and a lot of the other. Uh, Systems where it's like, you know, you could do a bunch of work to try to make all of NPM compatible or all of this legacy libraries compatible, or you could just say like, you know what? No, we're not. We're we're the new thing. You've got to make all new libraries, and we'll just start to capture all of the people that want to do that. Uh, I, and I think it's it's a much better model at the end of the day because you end up with an ecosystem that is really native. Um, like one of the problems that JVM languages have always had is that. They have these really great ideas about what what a new language, like how the new language can work and how to implement it on the JVM. And then they get the early community people writing really cool libraries. And then people come along and just port all the Java. They just write new bindings to all the Java stuff. And so when you're in that language, you don't ever really get a fully native experience, right? Like you're always tracing some, you know, failure or error condition that actually goes into some Java code that somebody bound to. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, like there's like I said the internet's a very big place there's a lot of people that want to be the first person to write something it's funny because I was thinking about this in terms of just even you know Babel an established project versus like every time there's a new project that comes up all these random people that just show up out of nowhere start becoming like maintainers and you're like where were they before (laughs) it's like they're waiting to be those people and so I almost feel like even if you are an established project if you want more contributors you should just make a new project name so like (laughs) Like say like Babel, so like Babel preset EMV, I made that a separate repo and then that like helped people get involved in it for some reason because it wasn't Babel, like Babel slash Babel for some reason. And I, I just realized that was, that's I guess that's the case for languages and ecosystems, even specific projects mm-hmm. then. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fun time. I think that like, I don't know, I, 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 I still like writing code. Like I, I keep writing code as a developer, um, even though like a lot of <laughs> what I do for work now is people pulling other skill sets out of me. Um, 
but uh, I have cut out enough time to keep writing code um, because I really enjoy it. And yeah, th- those new communities are always just so fun. Like, there's there's such a good time. Yeah, I guess people are like you, you know, like if it's something new, you know, everyone's like super instant advice to like get involved. Versus like all these other things, that maybe it just feels like everything's maintenance and like legacy stuff. And most people, I feel like, or I feel like all people don't want to do that anyway. And so many people like have pre-existing relationships, right? Like that, that you're sort of like, I don't know, like I, we don't talk about the people aspects of this enough. Like, um, mm. like that, that was one thing that we were talking about a lot 10 years ago, actually, was the people part of open source and all of that. Like, um, I do miss that a little bit. Like we were talking a lot more about just like how to make nice spaces and stuff. I think because like Rails became such like a toxic place for a little while um, that you know a lot of us were talking about like okay how do we do nice spaces for nice people and how do we keep it nice and that was certainly what me and Isaac talked about like a ton in the early Node days. Was just like how do we make this not like that? Like how do we keep encouraging people um, to stay nice even as we grow? Um, and yeah, I think that like in those early days, it's just so easy to have those conversations and to to meet new people and to build these relationships up. And when you when you jump into something like many many years later, it can be a lot harder. Um, like one thing that makes me really happy about the Node.js project <laughs> is that like we've just cycled leadership like. Every couple of years, <laughs> and part of it is burnout. Like it's not all good. <laughs> like people do just like burn out of that role because it's a really tough role to be in in leadership of the project. And there are more leaders in the project now too because it's so much bigger. But um, just having people cycle out is so nice um, because it, you know one it, it says to people that leadership is not uh, a lifetime task that you've taken on. Like you can leave when you start to get too stressed out. Um, and we've had a lot of people like I've seen James Snell like step up to something and then go like I just want to write code now <laughs> I'm not doing that anymore and come back to just like being in a yeah. Um But it's also like created a space where there's always sort of new faces and new people showing up. And you know I've I've, I've been out of the Node.js project directly for like two years now. And you know when I see the core contributors, like I don't know most of them. Like they're they're all new people. Um, and that's that's really cool. Uh, like I, I really like the dynamic that that sets and the precedent that it sets for that community. Right, because it's different to just say like, oh, you can step down at any point. But like seeing that actually happen is like, okay, I feel more comfortable actually doing that or joining. I suppose knowing that you're not going to have to maintain this thing forever. <laughs> I mean, I wrote Python for five years, and I tried to involve myself really deeply in that community in that project. And there was like sort of an impenetrable barrier of people that had already been there so long. That like you couldn't really get their ear, and you couldn't really take on leadership at that time. Uh, that changed a bit, like a little bit later, um, on, especially around their foundation. And and it, recently, like Guido is actually stepping down, and, and new people are taking it on. Um, so it definitely got got better. But I remember at the time, it was just it was just impossible to to think about like you know being in, involved in that the way that I've been involved in you know, any project since. Yeah, I guess it's interesting to think about like the perception people have on like who actually works on the project and. If you're able to be involved, I think it was a lot easier for me because, um, well, yeah, maybe you know, in a way, I wasn't the first person to get involved, but and it, you know, Babel at that time was already really established. It was more that there weren't enough people, so I just happened to be there. And then when Sebastian burned out, I just happened to be one of the people that accidentally became one. Of the <laughs> right, right. So. So, so, so when there aren't a lot of people and they leave, then you end up being the person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, 
back to what you're saying about like these like uh, famous and penetrable people. It's like no, they're, they're it's just we're just the people that stuck around, right? <laughs> yeah, long enough, long enough until someone else shows yeah, up. Maybe. Yeah. Well, like so, this is kind of kind of a funny story, but you know when the IOJS fork was happening. Which sort of led into modern node and and me kind of running the foundation. I sort of stepped in to to lead that effort and to sort of pull everybody together. And the main reason that it was on me was that I was the only person that everyone would still talk to. Um, (laughs) So I've been involved with node really early on and done a bunch of stuff in core. And then I really pulled away from core and started doing more community work and just node conf and everything else. And so as things got more, kind of more toxic around core, everyone got mad at each other. Um, and like, I didn't, you know, start a company that was trying to financially benefit from Node, and I was not like trying to get code into core. And so, uh, you know, there were a bunch of core developers that were all really unhappy, and they weren't speaking to each other. And so, actually, you know, like it, it might have looked from the outside like you know I showed up and I pushed everybody to start a fork. When I first heard about it. I heard that there was going to be a fork of Node. And I was like, oh, that sounds crazy. Like, let me talk to people about that. And then I dig into it, and I'm like, no, there's not going to be a fork of Node. There's going to be three forks of Node. <laughs> because, because three different groups of people are talking about forking Node, and they're not talking to each other. <laughs> so right. I literally stepped in, and I was like, okay, why don't we all talk about doing this together, maybe? Um, and then it was like, okay, well, maybe we can have Joyant like, let us take over the project. And so we got everybody in a room together to try to talk to them. Them. And by the by the end of that conversation, like like the the th- the, the accomplishment we had was not that we came as joint to do anything. It turned out that we <laughs> they were they were not done messing with us. Um, but the, the real win there was that everyone was on the same side other than joint, and that we were all in it together. Even companies that were literally suing each other. <laughs> Right, but they didn't know that, and they didn't realize that until you actually brought people together. Yeah, it's like well, and and also just something happened in the room where everyone sort of aired their grievances, and it seemed like everybody was like, you know, that they needed a different thing or they had a different perspective. And and I was the person that said like, the problem is none of these things. The problem is that nobody in this room is allowed to fix them except for Joint. <laughs> That's the problem. Like we have no, there is no like governance model here where we can take responsibility for any of this stuff. So it's not going to get fixed overnight. And we we don't have a solution to every problem here, but we can't even begin fixing them until we actually like have a stake in running this project. Um, yeah, and so that that was what you know eventually, like almost six months later, turned into the IOJS fork, and then um, and then joint you know <laughs> joint decided to start a foundation. According to them, in no way related to that, um, just happened to be like the foundation that, that I had set up for them to start. Um, and, and then so this foundation was started and then uh, we were able to merge the project in and basically just our governance model became the governance model of the project. And so I guess it just speaks to like the importance of I don't know, just communication and bringing people in a room kind of thing. I feel like we don't do that. Like for people that communicate so much with code and like on GitHub, like I feel like there's a lack of like what, what the video hangouts or yeah. like, I mean even though people go to conferences it's like it's like oh I'll meet you at the conference it's like okay <laughs> like, yeah, yeah it was funny like uh you know when people are asking me like when I was running the foundation like what do you do like what is your daily I was like I'm just on the phone all day <laughs> and they were like what and I was like yeah it's like the least transparent thing that you could do but actually like my my main job is to talk to people on the phone and do conflict resolution with them before anything blows up <laughs> that is my main job 
Um, like I think it's like a, it's almost like a mantra at the Linux Foundation. It's like just call, like J- JFC, just just call somebody. <laughs> like just get on the phone with them. Like you'll you'll just see like you know when people are communicating in text, like, you don't have a lot of the, the subtext there. Yeah, and it's really hard to like unwind people's thinking. Um, and and you you just get into the spiral where it's getting more and more aggressive, and it's like stop, just talk to each other, <laughs> like now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was a fun time. I guess now I'm wondering, like in general, like what is that the kind of thing that keeps you motivated to be doing this, like in this space? Uh, <laughs> no, I hated that actually. <laughs> okay, that's, that's funny. Um, yeah, I mean, looking looking back on it, like when IOJS was happening, and in I would say like the first year that I was running the Node Foundation, um, it's one of the few times in my life where there was just nobody else that could do what I was doing at that time. And that's, that's actually really rare. Like I'm not like such a great programmer that nobody could take on my code or, or, you know, like such a great manager or anything like that. Like there's really no other time where, no, no, if I don't do this, like, no, this is not going to happen. Um, it's, it's just impossible. Um, and then in the second year, it became much more of like, I'm just running this institution now. Um, and to some extent, like, I need to just be like fundraising for this institution. Um, and that was what like, you know, brought me to a decision to leave because if, if that's just what I'm doing, I think somebody else could probably do it better and that would be better for the project. So that's sort of why I left. Um, but no, I mean, a lot of those conflicts would take like a lot out of me. Um, and yeah, I'd have like a lot of downtime and, um, you know, I was taking on like a lot of just side projects that I would write some code every once in a while. So yeah, no, I mean, I'm actually like not, uh, yeah, conflict does take quite a bit out of me. I don't think that I would, would want to do that again permanently. Um, yeah. uh, like as I've gotten older um, and just gotten more experience, you end up picking up a lot of skill sets other than just writing code. And um, mm-hmm. wherever I've worked, um, there's always a pull of you know trying to lean on those other skill sets and get me to do things related to that because um, this is such a high growth industry that. There just aren't a lot of people with a lot of experience. Like, you know, you get rarer and rarer the older that you get in the industry. Yeah, I mean, I I, I end up getting pulled in a lot of directions um, and on a lot of different stuff. And more recently, um, actually, at my my day job at Protocol Labs, my my day job, it's all of my time, um, but <laughs> all of my time where I'm not raising my daughter, um, I, uh, I I've made it a point to like wind down a bunch of stuff that I was doing and um, to not be looped into so many different threads of things and to really just focus on one team um, that I'm working with and having enough time to to like really think about it and put everything into it. And that's been really rewarding. One, it's given me a chance to like actually be able to write code because there are things that need to be written that I am like well suited to write. Um, and um, just managing a small team is really fun. Having everybody like in sync and and building stuff together is a good time. Um, and it's you know it's a thing that I can do that I've done in the past. I've managed teams and companies and stuff. So and it, it doesn't feel like a, it's a lot of extra work or something that I'm doing because they need it from me. It's it it feels much more like a no no I'm I'm doing this because it's actually enjoyable to work with these people and and um, it's nice to unlock a lot of uh, their work as well. Like the happier the people are and the less that they have like unreasonable expectations being set on them, the better work that they'll get done. So that's been nice. Um, oh, just as you brought it up, I was curious, like, do you feel like there's any relationship between being a parent and doing open source? <laughs> well, I've been doing open source for like 15 years and I've been a parent for a year. So <laughs> I don't know yeah, if yeah. a direct <laughs> <engine>. um, <laughs> uh, 
I, you know, I think that like when she gets older, there might be more skill set overlap. Like there will be more conflict resolution. There'll be more explaining. You know, like, oh. she's, she's a one year old right now, so you know, yeah, yeah. If I'm explaining something to her, it's more for my benefit than for hers. <laughs> like, I really want to know that I told her why she shouldn't <laughs> grab that cord out of the wall. She's not really understanding. Mm-hmm. I mean, having a, a kid definitely like changes how you spend your time and how you think about things. Um, for me, it's been like just entirely positive. Like there's not a single negative thing that I can think of that's happened from it. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people like will talk about like, oh, the time and da da da. And it hasn't really happened for me. So one thing to, to keep in mind is that my wife also has like um, a, a really serious career that she takes very seriously. Um, she went back to work in about four months after uh, delivering. And so we have a, a nanny during the day while we, while we both work. Um, and then we, we completely share the parenting duties um, the rest of that time. It, it's really not on like in the first year, it's impossible to split 50, 50 because like if she's breastfeeding, like there's just things that only she can do. And so I'm just trying to do everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now it's, it's less about that and more that like sometimes, um, the kid is just in a mommy mood and (laughs) there's nothing you can do. And there's just like, and yeah, like, like, sorry, like you are going to have to do this because she's not letting me do it. But no, I mean, it's one, it's forced me to take a break every day away from like my work, um, and recharge. Like there was not a, a prompt to do that every day the way that there is now. Um, and as I've gotten more attuned to that, I've been able to like really enjoy the time with her and get a lot more out of it too. Um, so that's been really, really great. I think that having a kid immediately makes you way better at time management. <laughs> like you just realize, like, oh no, no, all those extra hours of flex that I had in the day to maybe do nothing or to <laughs> or to handle my work. Like, no, now I actually have to handle my work. So you you think about all of the work that you're doing. Um, in a much clearer way. What I mean by that is like, as part of your job, you'll, you'll end up, you know, um, doing extra things outside of work, reading articles here and there, answering emails. Like you may think of your job as just writing code, but then like much more of your time is actually spent on all these other things. And you never really sit back and catalog them until you either run out of time and burn out. Um, or, uh, if you just have less time. And so I've, I've had less time. And so I've had to be much clearer about, you know, you know, I can't take on this extra thing. It may sound like not a lot to you, but it's going to take me a lot of time to contextualize that and to keep on top of those conversations. And so, like, I'm not going to take on that work item. So, yeah. So that's and that's been really, I think, important for me. Um, when I look back on a lot of mistakes that I've made in my career, I think I can associate a lot of them with not managing my time and not with and with not managing expectations very well with just allowing a lot of things to pile up. And I even allowed that to happen when I started here and then I've had to unwind it. Um, But yeah, so that's been really good. And just like, I mean, it's just, it's really, people don't talk enough about um, how good it is for you to have a kid. Like not just like the, the, what you're putting into having a child, but in a lot of ways, like it makes you think about how you grew up and, and experience a lot of that over again. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. Um, <laughs> it definitely, it, it like, it like expands your, uh, your like emotional like window, right? Like, like the highs and the lows get very different. <laughs> like, like I didn't realize that I could be that worried about something <laughs> and also like that I couldn't, like, <laughs> you know, enjoy something that much. It's been, it's been really interesting. Right. It helps us appreciate our own parents and 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or like, I I had an interesting thing where like I definitely appreciate some of my parents, but also uh, I, I had a pretty rough childhood, uh, particularly around my stepfather. And uh, I actually went through a period of time where I I became an adult, and I was like, you know what? He was just a guy dealing with his own problems. Like maybe it's fine, and kind of tried to forgive him about stuff. And then he he hit on my sister at my dad's funeral, mm. and uh, and then I was like, <laughs> I, I have no reason to forgive him for anything. <laughs> um, but uh, since having a kid. I've actually like reevaluated that again and like, oh my God, like he was horrible. Like he was so bad at this. Like all of this this work that I'm putting into to try and like make sure that my stuff is together so that I don't project it on my kid. Like just none of that happened. Right. So there's like on the one hand, like with my mother and my father, I'm like very appreciative of a lot of what they did in in a new light. Um and then with my stepbrother, like a new level of criticism, actually. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, that's a. Uh, yeah, that's, that's that's a fun detour. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for joining me today. Um, yeah, yeah, this was a great talk. Um, I, yeah, I guess if um, you want to shout out like what you're working on or how people can contact you. Sure. So uh, I'm Michael M I K E A L at pretty much everything. So my DMs are open on Twitter if you just want to send me a message there. And uh, yeah, I mean you can look at my GitHub at the same handle to see kind of what I'm working on. A lot of what I'm working on right now is is called IPLD. Um, it's uh, the GitHub org is called IPLD, and um, what it is is it's it's a bunch of uh, new primitives and new data structures that are content addressed. Um, so they're they're these Merkle trees, um, particular type of Merkle tree called DAGs. Um, but essentially, we're we're trying to build fundamental building blocks for data structures so that we can decentralize data. So the way that the web is decentralized and that you can link to everybody in a web page, we want to open that possibility up for data. So you can stop caring about where the data comes from and stop putting all of the data behind an API and just sort of bring all of that into the client and into the browser. Share that data peer-to-peer, share it in you know, different locations and edges and offline and all of that. Um, and so yeah, that's that's mostly what I'm working on nowadays. Yeah, I didn't realize like hashing is so powerful. Like, I guess the idea that that it, I guess it removes the whole where because all you have to do is verify it's the same hash. Yeah, yeah. I, we talk about this a lot inside of protocol labs, but like the longer that you sit with content addressing as a primitive in your head and you think in it, it takes like years, but you just start to like open up just completely new, like second, third, fourth order, mm. you know, things that happen from it. But a, a big thing is like you don't have to trust the data source anymore, right? Like if I link to an URL, the thing that like, that I trust about that URL is the, the the location of it, right? Like I know that I have to talk to that authority to get that data, and then I'm getting the data that this person talked about. Um, if you want to decentralize data, you need like something that is not just like their name somewhere. <laughs> um, so a hash, like you can get that data from anybody, and then compute the hash, and you know that you got the data that you're talking about. So using a hash not just as a way to verify data, but a way to address data, really kind of changes the dynamic quite a bit. And one thing that um, Really, like Juan Benet, who started Protocol Labs, opened my eyes about, and I think that he's really like the first person to really put this out there that way, is to just broaden the scope of what is possible and how to think about those addressing. Like, these are not addresses inside of a namespace. These can actually just be global identifiers. Like, I can take this content address and go on the other side of the internet and know no other context and look it up out of a network. Whereas before, we'd always thought about, like, in a, like, 
Git uses Merkle trees internally, so there are hashes everywhere, right? Like when you, <laughs> like that's why there are hashes in your commits, is that like that's the hash of the head <laughs> of the tree, but those hashes are, are in only inside of that namespace of that repository, right? And in a blockchain too, like in blockchains, they use content addressing everywhere, but that's namespace to within that blockchain. Um, what we've done is created primitives so that those um, addresses can be much more global, that they can have a much more global context and that you can know what to do with them based on the identifier. So there's a little bit more on the identifier than just the hash. Cool. I feel like we can keep talking, but we'll yeah, probably, yeah. probably well, can always do it again. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Check out our website, maintainersanonymous.com for show notes and transcripts. If you have any feedback, ideas, or guest suggestions, you can reach me on Twitter at left underscore pat. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit patreon.com slash henryzoo. Thank you.